Hello and welcome, you're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our own solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Hugh Osborne and as always I'm joined by Andrew Rushby and Hannah Wakeford. In this episode of Exocast we're going to be covering a few of the month's most interesting papers and we've each focused on a single interesting development. Hannah's going to be summarising the most recent exoplanetary science coming out of JWST's early release science campaign. Andrew is going to be telling us a bit about the habitability of Enceladus' subsurface ocean, and I'm going to be talking about a new observation of compositional differences for planets around M-dwarfs. So, Hannah, you're first up. Tell us about James Webb. So I have done a Hugh and an Andrew, and I've picked three things instead of one. You've never done that in the past. You guys get to do it all the time. So we've had an amazing couple of months of exoplanet science from JWST, and we've seen the first... Three papers come out from the early release science programs. So these are programs that were designed by the community to test the instruments for different ways of doing the science that we want, but also provide the community with how-tos on how do you analyse time series observations of a transiting exoplanet? How do you get a directly imaged spectrum image of an exoplanet? So the papers that I'm going to be covering today are two papers from the JWST Early Release Science Program for direct observations of exoplanetary systems, and then one very brief first look paper from the JWST Transiting Exoplanet Community Program, which I am a part of, so I'm biased on that one. So I'm going to talk about the directly imaging ERS program first, they had two papers which came out and these are very comprehensive papers looking at first high contrast imaging. So this is coronagraphic imaging where they physically put a object in front of the star so they're blocking the light from the star and they're only looking at the light directly coming from that planet. So this is why it's direct imaging, they're directly measuring the planet. And that's of the kind of supergiant planet HIP 65426b. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> we thought the wasps and the hats and the things were bad. I don't think we featured that one on the show before, right? It's a, it's a new planet, perhaps, for Exocast. I don't know. I'm really not sure. But the, the first observation... Earlier planet. Yes, yes. <laughs> so the, the, the first observations that they've done were actually photometric observations. So they're taking individual images of them in different colours. And they're taking these individual images to build up what we call an SED. This is a spectral energy distribution. This basically registers the amount of light coming from an object in different colors, in different wavelengths. So they can build up this kind of very pseudo spectrum of the planet from each of these photos that they're getting. And one of the things that you can see from these is the, the capabilities of JWST itself from being able to just really clearly pull out the signature of the planet in each of the frames and each of the different filters that they're using. And that's really, really exciting. This kind of is testing the possibilities of going down to smaller and smaller planets. This is a seven Jupiter mass planet. It's a hefty 
exoplanet. But what they're doing, what they're able to show is that you can really push the limits of this. And we should be able to measure much, much smaller worlds with JDRST to, to very, very high precision. So the press image for this one was this beautiful kind of wide field image from a kind of a survey that you'd standardly see of the of the sky with the star blocked out and then kind of coming out of that was were four different images of the different colors where you can just see that planet picked out beautifully so this one was led by Aaron Carter it's part of the ERS program which was being PI'd by Sasha Hinckley and Beth Biller so that's two British PIs oh well they're both American but they they're both in Britain so <laughs> We got them for now. They're on loan. Yeah. But that's just the first of the papers from that team. They also released a second paper from the team. And this was led by Brittany Miles. And this one was actually looking at a full spectrum. So not just getting photos of it, but getting the full spectrum of this planet's atmosphere, which was absolutely amazing. So this was looking at VHS 1256-1257B. <sighs> Genuinely, n- no one can complain about the names that we have of things. <laughs> so what they did is they were able to measure the spectrum from one micron out to 20 microns. Now, JWST itself, the full spectral range it can do is one micron to 30 microns. So they're using almost the entire range of JWST for these observations. And what that shows is this really high resolution spectrum that looks like a model. It doesn't look like an observation. It looks like someone has pre-generated this simulation of what a planet should look like. And in this, you're seeing these beautiful dips which show the emission and absorption of different species in the atmosphere. And the big things that jumped out to me in this is because they're going to such long wavelengths, so beyond five microns, this is done with the MIRI instrument. And in those wavelength range, you can see evidence of magnesium silicates in the atmosphere. These are the clouds that are made of rock they're made of sand and you can see clear signatures of them present in this planetary mass body's atmosphere. So that's really, really exciting. But another thing that was quite exciting is the just the scope of that. The one micron all the way out to 20 microns really allows you to sample the oxygen species, the carbon species, even some atomic species in those bluer wavelengths towards the one micron end. And combining all of that information together, they're going to be able to really learn a huge amount. I mean, they show in one of the figures, this is just a, here's what we expect to see, here's what we actually see. And if you look at them, it's definitely that. The paper doesn't go into trying to fit them. It's literally just showing you, here's what we expect, here's what we've measured. We'll go into more detail in the future. And one of the best things that I have seen in this paper comes in figure four, where they show you what to expect from CO absorption. And it's this kind of fingering line bristle structure of a comb in two bumps, like a mustache. And in the data, you can just clearly see this amazing bristled mustache feature. And it's absolutely exquisite. So they have... As their ERS team done their job, showcased what JWST can do for directly imaged planets and and written kind of like a how-to for the community to make it much, much easier for people to go in and go, okay, 
this is what we can do. Let, let's keep going. Let's look at some other planetary systems. So bravo to them. It's, it's really beautiful. Yeah, that's super beautiful spectrum, if, you know, if I've ever seen one. Love a good moustache. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to very, very quickly talk about the Transting Exoplanet Community paper. This is just one of many, many papers which are in the works right now, which I cannot talk about. But this is really a first look at what we can do for transiting exoplanets. So this is done through time series where we measure the planet passing in front of the star. And we're measuring the spectra as it goes through the atmosphere and, and is absorbed. And straight from the data, we immediately were able to see the absorption by CO2 in the atmosphere. This is of WASP-39b. It's a Saturn-mass planet orbiting on just four days around its kind of very, very sun-like star. And back in 2018, I published a paper predicting that we would measure CO2. And we did. Nice. And I swear to God, I cried well done, when I saw the spectrum. Yeah. Well <laughs> it's It really is gorgeous. It's really hard to kind of describe how beautiful seeing those kinds of absorption features are in these planetary atmospheres because... We're learning constantly so much more. We have never measured a feature quite like this before. It is a broad feature. It's not narrow. It's not at high resolution. It's still at low resolution. But what we're able to learn from it is information about this planet's formation. And there's some other surprises in that spectrum too. There's some question yeah. marks. There's absorption features or there's apparent absorption features which we can't yet or we couldn't yet say what they are. So in the in the in interesting change. I think you might have given something away then. there. I mean, watch this space. We're gonna have a hell of a lot to talk about come kind of Christmas time. Yeah, or Christmas present. Maybe six other papers kind of amount to talk about. Wow. I mean, Nature Astronomy apparently gave. Was it even Nature gave ten? slots before even seeing any james webb data to the ers transiting planet team to publish 10 nature papers so uh you gotta fill them <laughs> i don't know that that 10 is the correct number there but it's not okay. a small number oh, maybe it's even more uh, and it's really very very exciting I'll confirm or yes. deny so i'm gonna leave it there Going again, you can find all of these papers open access and available to read uh, and see the just gorgeous gorgeous data that we're getting from jwst we'll link those on the web page of course i'm not gonna answer any questions so i'm gonna hand straight over to andrew <laughs> How very evasive of you, Hannah. How very evasive, I'm sure. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. It's exciting stuff with a lot more exciting stuff to come. We'll leave it there. Exocast. Now, I'm going to take us on a little journey back to the solar system. I say back because I'm hoping if you're listening to this, you've also heard our previous episode this month with Dr. Naomi Rogerny, where we're talking about the outer solar system. And there's some exciting stuff going on in the outer solar system, or still going on, not just from JWST, but I'm going to talk about a paper called Abundant Phosphorus Expected for Possible Life in Enceladus's Ocean, which is a nice little summary of what's going to happen there. <laughs> so Saturn's sixth largest moon, Enceladus, is an object of keen astrobiological interest, has been for a while. It's orbiting the ring giant in about 33 hours it's tidally locked and it's covered in this brilliant relatively fresh at least geologically speaking water ice crust overlying a fresh water ocean of some sort and now we know that there's an ocean there we're sure of that because some of it is actually leaking out into space and we can sample it and i say leaking but that's not quite accurate it's actually more being spewed out from warm fractures in the icy crust 
as high-pressure jets at about 400 metres per second. So leaking is definitely not accurate. And some of that water ice or some of that material is falling back uh, on the moon's surface as this icy snow, which is giving it this lovely, fresh feeling. And honestly, that just sounds lovely to me. Just imagining being <laughs> yeah. there. I'm sure it'd be, you know, pretty intense uh, of an environment, but that just sounds... You need a good coat. Sounds yeah. great. Oh, yes. <laughs> over, your, <laughs> over your space suit, a snow coat on top of that. And some of it, of course, actually also falls to the surface, but some of it actually ends up escaping the moon's gravity well and ends up as Saturn's E-ring, which is where we can actually sample some of that material and actually get a little insight into what's going on in the interior of one of Saturn's moons by looking at the composition of one of its rings. So I think that's really, really cool, uh, really very elegant finding. So as I mentioned, the jets are not just comprised of water, Cassini, which we love. Uh, mission to Saturn discovered that the plumes also contain carbon dioxide, methane, trace detections of ammonia, some CO, as well as some salts and some very interesting silica nanograins that were uh, actually sampled from the E-ring, as I mentioned. And these really only form one way that we know of at the moment. The formation history suggests liquid water in contact with silicate rock at around about 90 degrees Celsius, a relatively narrow range to make something like this. And it's not, not definitive, but for many people, this strongly suggests some sort of hydrothermal vent source, perhaps, for that silica. And also confirms, as I think we probably knew, but you know, it's always good to get that evidence, that there is still some internal heat going on there, probably from tidal interactions with Saturn and its big sister moon, Dione. So the picture that was forming, essentially, was the oceans of Enceladus looking increasingly astrobiologically exciting, right? We have heat, we've got apparently some rock-water interactions, we've got lots of organics, a sample from the plumes. So now a new paper from Ji Hao of the Chinese Academy of Sciences and his colleagues using Cassini data and some new geochemical modelling of the Enceladan ocean have added yet another tile, if you will, to the emerging mosaic of Enceladan habitability, phosphorus. So phosphorus is a key macronutrient that's essential for life on Earth, involved in lots of biological processes, but it's pretty difficult to get into some sort of bioavailable form um, and is a key you know, limiting nutrient in, in the Earth's oceans uh, and lakes and, and whatnot. But they found that in the subsurface ocean of Enceladus, phosphorus might actually be as abundant, at least, uh, as in the Earth's oceans, existing in a predicted range of somewhere between 10 to the minus 7 and 10 to the minus 2 moles of phosphorus per kilogram of water, compared to around about the 10 to the minus 6 moles per kilogram. Uh, moles per kilogram of, of water here on Earth. This is also several orders of magnitude higher than the previous estimates, which are around 10 to the 10 molel, because these, according to the paper anyway, use some very low solubility equilibrium constants for a particular mineral called woodlockite, it's a calcium phosphate, which seems to have, according to them, some inconsistent thermodynamic data between the observed and the experimental equilibrium constant. So basically we're underestimating the solubility of, of phosphorus perhaps in there. They also included other forms, reduced forms of phosphorus such as phosphine. Oh look, here it is again. Phosphine suddenly coming oh, back to the fore in the solar system, causing trouble. Now, this could have come from the solar nebula or from some, you know, a Venusian type source that we have no idea about yet. And as well as phosphite from these maybe hypothesized uh, rock water interactions. So there's maybe a few more pathways for, for phosphorus than was originally known. But they attribute the abundance that they're predicting to this new, you know, chemistry that they've worked out. The chemistry of the Enceladan Ocean is a little bit different from that of the, of the uh, Earth's ocean, as we might expect. What they're imagining is, is producing this abundance of phosphate is bicarbonate formation in the ocean, which strips the seawater of the, the multivalent cations that allow the soluble phosphate, uh, uh, phosphorus to accumulate. So primarily as orthophosphate. 
Now this is controlled by the kind of the pH of the of the ocean water itself. Lower lower pH, more acidic, you get more orthophosphates, um, as well as the dissolved CO2 concentrations, of course, which will control the amount of bicarbonate that's forming. So there's still some uncertainty there, but they suggest that given what we know about the Enceladus Ocean um, and we don't really know that much about the pH yet, but even with that range, it looks like there is going to be more phosphate in those oceans than, than was expected. And again, this isn't entirely theoretical. There's a, a terrestrial analogue for this pathway uh, in the form of alkaline and carbonate-rich lake waters on Earth, which are called soda lakes. So they wanted to make the connection and call this a soda ocean, but they acknowledged that it's not quite accurate. There's no ocean-atmosphere uh, interaction or, or any evaporation, which is quite important for those. But think about it as a soda ocean is kind of, kind of cool. It's also supported by actual like experimental methods in soil science, where that's how you actually extract phosphates from soils is using a bicarbonate solution. So it's, you know, it's pretty fundamental geochemistry at the end of it, as well as experimental evidence from aqueous leaching of phosphate um, from the Murchison and Allende carbonaceous uh, chondrites in similar geochemical experimental settings at least. So they paid, provided a lot of evidence for this, for this pathway and I, I found it pretty convincing. But to put all these you know, kind of values in context, phosphorus becomes limiting for earth-based hydrothermal vent dwelling type organisms, methanogens, something like that, below 10 to the minus 8 or 10 to the minus 6 molars. So this suggests that at least in terms of phosphorus, the Enceladan Ocean is comparable if not maybe more favourable than the earth in that respect. If you get into the speculative realm and say that with some biological feedback mechanisms, maybe of a, a guy in nature, it could promote the bioavailability of phosphorus in the in the author's own words uh, through recycling or, and organic phosphorus synthesis in the ocean column. But that's getting more into the hypothetical side of things, so we'll avoid that for now. The limiting factor in the ocean instead of phosphorus might be something like some of the, the metals that are needed in small amounts, transition metals, stuff like nickel and zinc, but also oxidants, which are tricky to produce in that kind of environment. I think it'll probably come from the radiolysis of the, of the surface ice in that kind of high energy environment around Saturn, but we don't really know how much that, how much that produces in terms of oxidants and how easy and the rate at which the oxidants are introduced into the ocean. You need some reductants, some oxygens make a nice chemical gradient for some redox reactions and some delicious energy for, for life to, to use. So that's, that's relatively unconstrained. But overall, I thought this was a great paper, well-written, punchy, uh, made a strong case for a phosphorus-rich Enceladan uh, Ocean, and drew on data from Cassini as well as this updated modelling approach. But as always, the story doesn't stop there. We need to actually test this, as all good scientists do. They make a prediction, then something tests it, just as, as in the case of Hannah's, Hannah's recent work. So um, they want to find some uh, sodium phosphate salts, as well as, you know, I, I mentioned like how important phosphate is in the, in the Earth's oceans. It's something called the Redfield Ratio. It's got Redfield, it came up with you know, a, a perfect amount of like nitrogen and phosphorus for, for organisms to, to grow effectively. So we need to figure out what the balance of the phosphorus is to other biogenic elements in, in that ocean water, which would then also allow us to test the model predictions because, you know, the, the, the various ratio will give us a constraint on what the conditions geochemically are like in the oceans. So they do predict, uh, you know, maybe some future missions or even using already collected data from Cassini's cosmic dust analyzer, reanalyzing that could provide some insights, but we probably need a future mission for it. But maybe just another interesting, positive outer solar system habitability finding. You know, I'm such an outer solar system evangelist these days. And here's another, here's another one, I think. Just to see if I understood correctly, because obviously I'm, I'm an observer, I don't do chemistry or theory so there's no direct observation of phosphorus but it's basically like given all of the things we do see yeah. and given that we know that phosphorus should exist in abundance of 
solar system abundances or whatever, then this is what the given, you know, the, the conditions that we know and the things we see, this is what the concentration should be. And that is compatible with life. That's basically the summary. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they used some okay. Cassini data, I think, for some for hydrogen and some of the other, you know, sampling the gases, obviously, that were coming out of the of the plumes. And I think the key was uh, the reanalysis of that data with this updated geochemical model that had these perhaps more complex or updated phosphate pathways or phosphine pathways or reduced reduced phosphorus uh, pathways which added that so yeah it was reconciling the observations with improved modeling to revisit this issue i mean as i said previous estimates have were several orders of magnitude lower previous estimates were made and you should read the paper because they're pretty clear about the the failings of the, of the previous <laughs> previous work in a, a professional way of course but there does seem to be some as they said some issues with the particular equilibrium constant i.e how soluble that particular uh, calcium phosphate mineral actually was so revisiting that is, is going to be crucially important and i think that was the key the key element combined with i, I think some of the the strong evidence they gave for you know terrestrial analogs and, and other pathways here on earth it seemed it seemed a pretty convincing piece of work to me but i'm hoping we can maybe take things back into the exoplanet realm leaving the solar system uh, and hear about Hughes paper for this month exocast Sure. Yeah. So I'm talking about the paper, which is Density Not Radius Separates Rocky and Water-Rich Small Planets Orbiting M-Dwarf Stars. And I found this a really interesting paper. Like, well, I mean, I saw a presentation first at Exoplanets 4, and I found it super, super interesting. And hopefully I can convince you as to why. So one of the key insights, I think, that we've had in recent years is when astronomers kind of look at the growing number of detected exoplanets as a function of the fundamental parameters, mass, radius, distance, things like this, temperature, and then kind of delve into that population and find some underlying pattern which tells us about the formation evolution history of, of, of the of the actual you know planets across the universe uh, and i think some you know the clear example of that was the radius valley which was um, found in in 2016 from kepler planets by um well initially fulton et al but you know what confirmed by other other people and other examples are you know the hot neptune desert and the, you know hot jupiter inflation and this kind of peas in the pod thing i talked about last month on the news and typically all of these past insights have been in terms of planetary radius and this is because for transit surveys which is how we found most of our planets this is the thing that we can measure really precisely we get you know planetary radius down to five or ten percent in terms of precision and that can tell us something about you know exoplanet populations as a function of, of radius and the, the actual masses of the planets have been kind of lagging behind for a long time because in order to measure a, precisely a mass of a planet you need a bright star you need precise spectrograph to monitor that star and you know you need hundreds of observations over many many months potentially many years to build up enough radial velocity data to give you a precise mass. And even then, typically the mass precision is lower than the radius precision just because it's, it's a much more difficult measurement to make. But thanks to TESS, which has been finding planets around bright stars, that's its kind of raison d'etre, there are more and more small planets with precise masses to fill a population. And that's especially true for planets orbiting M-dwarfs. So M-dwarfs has the kind of, you know, these red small, small stars. They can be something like four or five times less massive than the sun making that planetary radial velocity amplitude two or three times stronger, so two or three times easier to find and, and study. So what Rafa Luque and Hendrik Palais, some colleagues of mine actually did, was they took the best characterised M-dwarf planets and looked at their masses and radii. So looked at their bulk densities, basically, because that's what a mass and radius gives you. And what they found was kind of remarkable that the smaller planets seem to line up perfectly 
along two lines of constant composition, or you know, which is basically constant density. So there's a group of smaller planets around M dwarfs, which all have uh, masses less than about 10 Earth masses and radii less than about 1.5 Earth radii, uh, whose densities seem to perfectly align with the Earth-like planet trend. So basically telling us that they have about 70% silicates and 30% iron, just like the Earth. And this was kind of known previously that a lot of these terrestrial planets seem to have similar compositions to Earth. You know, the seven Trappist planets all seem to follow the Earth-like trend as well. However, for kind of larger, less dense planets, it's a bit more difficult because there's two different things you can put on one of these rocky cores to make it less dense. So you can you can throw water on or you can throw gas on. And, and, and both of these inflate the planet and give it a larger radius and lower density. So we can't, for an individual planet, kind of differentiate between these two. But statistically, we can kind of see through this uh, to get at the underlying population. And this is what Rafa Luque and, and Enric Pallet did. They basically found that there's a clear group of larger planets, something like 1.5 to 2.2 Earth radii, with masses from 2.5 to 10 Earth, Earth mass, whose densities perfectly fit a 50-50 mix of water to rock. They line up perfectly on this second line, kind of spaced above the terrestrial line, because these are less dense. And this is actually an interesting place to find a pileup of planets, because that one-to-one -one ratio of rock to ice, that's exactly what we find in the solar system, beyond the snow line. So all of that we just heard about Enceladus, Basically, most of the icy moons that haven't been you know, affected by, by some other processes have about a 50% water-to-rock to ratio. And it's exactly the ratio that's predicted from formation models as well, especially pebble accretion. If you're forming bits of rock you know, that, fall, that grow into planets beyond the snow line, they should have about a 50-50 water-to-rock ratio. So to find this line of planets along this exact 50-50 trend is actually really really interesting to see and, and also i found it especially amazing because only i think a year before I, I i read this paper i saw a presentation from julia venturini who's actually here at Bern, and she predicted this she was running population models completely theoretically and said that there should be two groups of planets dense rocky cores uh, which form closer in and typically have masses less than about four earth masses and then lower density icy cores formed beyond the snow line with masses from 5 to 10 Earth masses, and with this 50-50 mix of water to rock. And interestingly, she came... Well, one of the things she said was that this is the radius valley. It's it's not evaporation. It's not core-powered mass loss or whatever that is. It's the fact that you have terrestrial planets that are less than 1.5 Earth radii and icy planets, which are 1.6 to 2.5 Earth radii. So I think this is such an interesting insight into the composition of, of exoplanets. And so there's an, a, another thing that kind of goes with this kind of formational aspect is that, that actually there seems to be this uh, lower limit in the mass of the icy cores, so of the icy planets, those planets with 50-50 water to rock, of about two to three Earth masses. And this fits with how big we think a planet needs to get beyond the snow line in order to start migrating inwards. And indeed, in fact, there are systems that, uh, in their sample of planets where they have one planet that appears to be terrestrial, so small and rocky, and one planet that appears to be lower density, this, this kind of larger, larger mass icy body. And it, the, they are always aligned such that the rocky planet is inside of the icy planet, mm -hmm. which obviously makes sense if the icy planet has come in from outside, from beyond the snow line, so where there's more ice, well, where there is ice to form. So it all fits extremely neatly together, and I think it's really compelling evidence that 
a large fraction of the planets that we have in our kind of populations, in our surveys, these are water-rich bodies, which is something we didn't really know about. We weren't sure if they were, they were gas-rich or they were water-rich, as I, as I pointed out before. There is actually a third group, so there's not just two groups of planets. They found that there are these planets with even lower densities, usually with even higher masses. And these seem to, well, they must have gas. They must have some quantity of hydrogen helium on, in the atmosphere or potentially some kind of steam atmosphere, which is uh, bloating them up. And these are kind of the least neatly placed group because that you know there's maybe a continuum here. It's not just two samples of planets. Another interesting thing that is that it seems to be only clear for M dwarfs, not for larger stars. So they they did look at, at kind of sun-like stars and, and maybe K dwarfs, and they didn't see this collection of of two um, populations of planets. Part of the reason is that actually M dwarfs are so much easier to to characterize planets around. So you, you, we can use radial velocities to find the masses of small planets. But maybe there's also some sort of different formation or migration pathways at play in these, these kind of sun-like stars as opposed to M-dwarfs. But, you know, one of the cool things is it hints that the radius valley or our understanding of the radius valley is wrong, is that maybe, it, it, at least in part, it's not an evaporation valley, it's a compositional valley. And certainly in terms of density, they show that there is this really clear valley between Earth-like planets and icy planets. And so, yeah, I think this is one of the most key papers to have, have come out of populational studies of exoplanets for five years. So I think this is a, a really cool paper which will kind of set the scene for the next five years in terms of exoplanet detection and, and characterization. Nice. I saw the plot from this and it's, it really is beautiful. It's a really lovely visual way to see this difference between them. But I, I do want to argue with that last statement you made about that this is not an evaporation valley. I want to add the caveat as shown for M dwarfs, because again, I think that there are these other mechanisms that we've talked about on the show at play in perhaps these different, around orbiting around these different stars where you've got that interior heat potentially, or you've got that exterior radiation. So for M dwarfs, it might not be the case. And we've already seen hints that M dwarfs, the disks around them need to be substantially different from the disks around larger stars. So perhaps we're getting finally into the nuances of star and planet formation and the importance of considering both of those things together. Yeah. No, I think it's definitely for there is there is certainly evaporation that happens that can also change planets. So I think it's a it's a part of the story, this compositional mm. thing. And certainly we're not sure if it's true for, you know, FGK, so sun-like stars yet. But I think yeah, it's it's def there's definitely something interesting there. Yeah, very cool. Anything with a neat straight line. Like to see it. Or you don't like to see it. One of one or the other. It is mm. a log plot, maybe. Mm. Suspicious about that. Mm. Uh, it sounds like a very elegant paper, well argued here. Well, we've had some absolutely great papers highlighted there. We've had some previous predictions confirmed in multiple different ways from all uh, myself and Hugh's papers, and perhaps Andrew's one will produce something new in the future. Don't put a time limit on it, Hannah. <laughs> no, okay, fine, fair enough. <laughs> so huge amount of brand new science there, but lots of potential as well. Don't forget to look out for our other episode this month where we interview Dr. Naomi Rogerny about everything Uranus-related. Let us know what you think about the show through Twitter at exo underscore cast and on our website exocast.org where you can find all of our previous shows. 
You can help support the show and the Exocast team by heading to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Exocast. Each of our coffees is just $4 and every single donation over $15 will get you a shout out on the show. Massive thank you to all of our previous donors. You really do help keep the show going for Exocast. You can also help contribute to those costs by getting your hands on some Exocast merchandise. Andrew is always sporting the Exocast mug. We have t-shirts, we have stickers, and many, many more things are at exocast.threadless.com. Exocast is edited by Fergus Hall and is available wherever you get your podcast. So thank you for listening and we will be around next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Exocast. You have been listening to Exocast. The Exocast team is Hugh Osborne, Kelps Test Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Bern in Switzerland, Hannah Wakeford, Lecturer in Astrophysics at the University of Bristol, and Andrew Rushby, Lecturer in Astrobiology at Birkbeck University of London. Our podcasts are edited by Fergus Hall and are made possible through your donations. Find more on exocast.org.